Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. It's uniquely holy with no rivals, no competition. And so when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that he is transcendentally separate. Turn to your neighbor and say, transcendentally separate. He transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is other in a special or different way. So that's one aspect of holiness. Here's the second. The second key aspect of God's holiness is his absolute purity or goodness. He is untouched and unstained by evil in the world. He doesn't in any sense participate it. Habakkuk 1.3 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. James 1.3 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. And, um, and then uh, in Job 34.12, It is unthinkable that God could do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. John, I added this part to the definition, says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so this otherness, the otherness of God, and the absolute moral purity of God is the basis for our worship and our discipleship. And so what I want to talk about this morning from Isaiah is three reasons that we actually need a vision of God's holiness. And when I say a vision, I'm not talking about just the intellectual understanding of God's holiness, but I'm actually, that's where it begins Think of the, the intellectual understanding as like, like a wire that's running from our head to our heart. We can't have a, a heart-level revelation of God's holiness without the idea, so we want to talk about it. But what we need is God to energize that idea of holiness and to reveal it to our heart. And we desperately need this in an age of anxiety. I want to talk about three reasons why we need a fresh revelation of God's holiness. You with me? Good, good to go. All right, first reason. We need a heart revelation of God's holiness so that we worship the real God. I'll just say it again. I know this sounds tautological, but we need God to reveal his holiness to us so that we're sure that the God that we are worshiping and thinking about is the actual God. One of the great temptations of being a human being is that we have a temptation to create idols. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory, right? Uh, we know about Tesla factories and gigafactories, and, you know, I was hearing about a diaper factory the other day on NPR, but our heart is an idol factory, and so even though there's a God who made you, a God, we talked about this last week, is our creator, we have this, this temptation to worship created things. And one of the things that we can create is God, right? We can create a version of God that is not the real God. And to reduce that God so that it fits within my life and my comfort, and we worship that. A God who affirms my decisions, who comforts me, who never challenges me, never holds me accountable. Basically, a God who can fit in a box, that I have made for that God. 
and I can carry it around. Do you understand? God, in, like Jack in the box, this is God in the box. There's only one problem, though. What's the problem with the God that fits in the box? It's not God. Because the real God doesn't fit in the box. And just literally in this passage, Isaiah looks, and he's in the temple. And by the way, the temple was about the size of this room. I did the math. You know, I had to convert cubits and stuff. <laughs> but it's about the size of this room. And I just want to just look up right now. And in Isaiah's vision, of course God is bigger than this, but in the vision, the tassel of God's robe filled the temple. And so, did God fit in the box? No, it could hold the tassel of his robe. But he was bigger, right? He didn't fit in the box. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't fit in the box of our minds either. You know, Isaiah had a mental box for God, and he knew his Bible. He knew Leviticus 19 too, be holy as I am holy. He knew that God was holy. He knew it, right? We know he's holy. We sing holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. But when Isaiah sees the Lord, what happens? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Right? Because he had a heart revelation of God's holiness, and all of a sudden the word meant what it was supposed to mean to him. God's holiness is like the sun. It's just outside there. We need it, right? We need it to light the world. It's the source of energy. It's the source of life. But we can't, and kids, don't do this. Don't look directly at the sun. Why? Because it can blind you. It's so bright. Even from a distance of 93 million miles, if you step outside the Earth's magnetosphere, it's a cool word, magnetosphere, right? But basically, the, the magnetic sphere of the Earth, at, the, at 93 million miles, the sun's rays will kill you. If we get too close, if you fly into the sun, it will vaporize you. And spiritually, God is brighter than the sun. The, just look at the seraphim, okay? Seraphim are in the temple. These are some seriously diesel creatures. I mean, they, their name means burning ones, and they had six wings. And when they cried, holy, it says that the doorposts of the temple shook. And by the way, the doorposts, I did some more math, were 27 feet high and six feet wide. And at the sound of these angels, they... They vibrated like tuning forks. But even the seraphim are overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord. They use two-thirds of their wings to hide themselves from the radiance of his glory. God is so holy that any creature that comes into contact with his unmediated glory is incredibly uncomfortable. Just read, Isaiah says, Woe, in, woe is me, I am ruined. Peter, when he sees Jesus uh, catch all the, all the fish, he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Job, at the end of Job, right? Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. This is awesome stuff, right? John, Jesus' best friend in Revelation, right? G John, the, um, the, the apostle, was Jesus' best friend on earth. He sees a vision of the risen Jesus, in Revelation 1, and it says that I, when I saw him, I fell down as though a dead man. So what has changed about God? Like, 
that we, don't, we come into church and we're like, yeah, cool, here we are, we're in church, I'm tired, need coffee, at daylight savings, how are you? Um, why is it that we don't respond this way? And the reason is that we're not accurately perceiving who God really is. And it could be in his mercy that he's protecting us from the full revelation of his glory. How many of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. Cool. So I've never been to the Grand Canyon. Um, and everyone I talk to says, Greg, you got to see the Grand Canyon. But I'm not so sure. I don't think I need to see it. Um, because I have an idea in my mind of the Grand Canyon, right? And I've seen pictures. Do we have a picture? There it is. See, I could see it. You could see it. I could see the picture. But what do you say to me? If you've seen it, what do you say? The picture doesn't do it justice, right? But guys, I have an accurate idea in my mind of the Grand Canyon. I know what it is. It is a giant hole in the ground that was carved by the Colorado River. But you guys are like, no, Greg, it's awesome. You have to see it. It's so awesome. And I say, I know what awesome means. I have an awesome toaster. I have an awesome backyard. I have an awesome wife. I know awesome. And you say, no, Greg, until you stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon and you look out into its vastness and you feel it. Sarah talked about it like here. It's like when you turn the subwoofer on, you feel the music, right? And you stand there on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you stare into it and you feel it right here. And you realize how small you are. And how vast it is. And it almost envelops you. And it pulls you in. The only problem with our, my ideas about the Grand Canyon is that they're not the Grand Canyon. And so it is with the holiness of God. You know, many of us have heard words about it. But what we need is a heart level revelation. The idea is important. But we need God to reveal it to us. So how do we, how do we behold the holiness of God? How do we do it? I think it's the same way as me in the Grand Canyon. I, first, I hear testimonies about it. I hear stories. And I see it on there, and I'm like, that looks cool. But then I hear people say, no, 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 no. You have to go. You have to see this for yourself. And I begin to realize that the ideas I have about this thing do not actually do it justice. They don't capture it. And that there's actually more to this thing than I've experienced. There's more. And if I saw it, I would be overwhelmed. And then we decide that even if I'm uncomfortable, even if it makes me dizzy, even if it gives me vertigo, I want to see God as he really is. Not just like the, the picture in the cartoon Bible, but I want to see the real thing. And so we begin to ask him, and we say like Moses did, like, Lord, if I found favor in your sight, then teach me your ways so that I might know you. And find favor in your sight. And God's like, all right, I'll do it. And Moses says, and Lord, show me your glory. And then we put ourselves in a position where we can behold the glory of God. Isaiah, where was he when he saw the vision? He was in the temple. And so one of the reasons, friends, why we're creating all these spaces in our church <clears throat> is we're creating, it's like, think of it like little, like little viewpoints along the edge of the Grand Canyon. 
And we're saying, come, come to these prayer gatherings. Come to the all-city worship gathering. Come, put yourself in a place where through the scripture and through prayer and worship, God has the opportunity to reveal his holiness to your heart because he comes where he's wanted. And so if we ask God, like, Lord, show me, he draws near to those who draw near to him. So a few, you know, a few, I'll just share just one story. And even as I think about it, it gives me longing. You know, when we started these altar prayer gatherings, like it was probably, I guess it was eight years ago now in our living room. And, um, and I remember um, one, you know, we'd been meeting several weeks, but one, one week we were just worshiping and praying. And we actually started singing a song that was that basically the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we were singing, all the angels cry, holy is the Lord. And I remember the strangest thing happened. I don't know how to describe it, but it was just as if there was, like, how would you describe it, Sarah? It was, it, it was like heaven touched down. It was like all of a sudden the, the roof got ripped off the room and the atmosphere of heaven was there, and it was almost like you could almost hear the angels, and I, and I was singing, and I, I was overwhelmed and overcome, and I looked at Sarah, and she just had her face covered. Like, she couldn't even, she could, like, it was a revelation of the utter holiness of God. And this is what we need, friends. This is what we need, because this is what's actually happening in the most true place. This is what will happen. It's happening it was happening in the beginning as it was in the beginning, is now, and world, will be world without end. This, is, this worship is actually happening. But on earth, it's veiled from our sight unless we ask God for a heart revelation of his holiness. So the second reason we need a fresh revelation of, uh, is the first is so that we can worship the God who really is and not a God in a box. The second is that so that we can see ourselves clearly. All right? Especially even that we can see our sin clearly. So John Calvin begins his institutes uh, by arguing that the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God are intrinsically linked together. That you can't actually know the one without the other. You can't actually know yourself apart from God. You can sort of know it, but you can't really understand who you are apart from God. And so when Isaiah comes into the temple and he sees how bright and brilliant is the holiness of God, all of a sudden he realizes, I'm a man of unclean lips. And that's what happens when we, we like most of the time, we, you know, Isaiah knew, oh yeah, maybe I have unclean lips, but what, but, but so does everyone else, right? So does in fact, my lips are probably cleaner than that person's, you know. Yeah, I'm prideful, but so are they, you know. Or, oh, I get angry at my kids, but every, all the parents get angry at their kids. You know what I mean? Name your own sin. Like, think about it for a minute. What are the things that when, when you look at yourself, you're like, yeah, I got these issues, but everybody else does too. And we might even say, you know what, I'm better than you. Like, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I've got my life way more put together than, you know, Noah, who's like he's sleeping through my sermon right now. I'm just kidding. I'm just seeing if you're awake, kid. But then we look at God, and all of a sudden, he's the standard in his blazing 
brightness and his purity. And we realize, oh, I may be a 75-watt bulb, and they may be a 60-watt bulb, and that person may be a 100-watt bulb, but God is a supernova. And all of a sudden, the differences in between us pale in comparison. And we realize, oh, compared to the purity and holiness of God, my, my lips are un- impure. In fact, my entire people has impure lips. And so part of, part of what we need, why we need to look at God is it actually shows us who we are. It robs us of the illusion that we're fine. Because compared to God, we're really not. And we'll realize it now or we'll realize it later. And so what would it mean, though, to begin to come into the light of God right now, even if it starts to show us the parts of us that aren't so good? Because we can actually begin to come into alignment with the way things will be in the final state, right? When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. I think the other, the other part of this, I think, is it, it, what, it, what it does when we see God is it, it gives us humility. It gives us humility. I think this is incredibly important. And if I can go on a little tiny tangent rant, if that's okay. Um, I think especially for, for those of us that are passionate about justice, this is really important to be able to see ourselves compared to God and to have God as the ultimate standard, and to have that kind of humility. Because justice is a really important thing. It's near and dear to the heart of God. And I think when the church is silent on matters of justice, nature abhors a vacuum. The world begins to speak. One of the problems, though, is that when we, and this has been in resurgence over probably the last 10 years, this, this, um, this zeitgeist for justice, when justice is not based with God as the standard and the center, um, then it begins to be about comparing me to other people, right? Um, We begin to build philosophies of justice not on the absolute holiness of God and the fact that we all fall short, but we base it on other things like secular critical theories, postmodern theories, which I studied in college. They're helpful. They're well and good. They help us to analyze injustice. But anytime we want to have justice and we put anything other than God at the center of it without his holiness as our primary reference point, it has a sneaky way of morphing into a new form of oppression. This is what happened in the French Revolution, if you study in the 1700s. It's what happened among the Bolsheviks in the 1900s. Because without God as the reference point, what we end up doing is comparing ourselves to others. We are wrong, or we are right, and they are wrong. They're evil, but we're just. They're corrupt, but we're holy. Do you see where I'm going with this? They deserve to be punished, and I'm going to give it to them. They've transgressed the code, and so we will shame them or cancel them. And somehow, it actually never solves the problem. At the end of it, it just creates new ones. And when the fever of justice breaks, it's hard to tell if we're any better off. Because all we're left with is alienated relationships, more tribalism, more fear, more anger. But when the holiness of God is at the center of our justice, it produces human flourishing. Because we're all together humbled in comparison to the one who is utterly holy. Does that make sense? 
And so as I, I prepare to wrap, I just want to invite the uh, worship team up. And in a minute, we're going to have some response time, um, some questions, and Andrew is going to lead us in that. Um, but the final reason that we need a heart-level revelation of God's holiness is so that we can actually understand the gospel. It's so that we can actually understand what the gospel is all about. So Isaiah comes into the temple of the Lord, and he looks at a holy God, and he says, Woe is me. I am ruined. I have unclean lips. Now notice what Isaiah doesn't do. He doesn't say, oh, but I'm going to get my act together, God. You know, because I can tell that, uh, you know, I've been not up to your standard. But, you know, I'm going to work really hard at it. And maybe I'll be good enough for you. Right? Maybe I can, maybe I can fix this thing. But Isaiah doesn't say that. Because when he sees the holiness of God, he says, I'm ruined. There's no way. To bridge, he, basically, Isaiah comes to the edge of the Grand Canyon. And he looks out. And here he is. And there God is. And, and for us to get to God, when we have that heart revel, revelation of his holiness, we realize it's futile. It's like trying to run to the sun. It's like trying to walk 93 million miles. It's like trying to get across the Grand Canyon. And it exposes this profound moral tension in the universe. And Sarah talked about it. That God is a God who more than anything created us in love. And he wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with you more than anything else. He loves you more than you could possibly understand. And we're like, yeah, the love of God. Yeah, I get that. That's great. Thank you for your love. And he's holy. He's a blazing fireball. He's a nuclear furnace of moral purity. He's so far beyond pure. When we come into his presence, we, we are vaporized. And so this God that wants to be close to us has a problem. And the problem is, he's God. How's he going to do it? And Isaiah sees it. He says, I can't, I can't even stand in your presence, God. I can't. And friends, there are some of us that one of the reasons you need a heart-level revelation of God's holiness is that you have been trying on your own to be good enough for God. You're trying to get your act together. You're trying to please him. You, because somehow you think, oh, if I just work hard enough for him or I please him or I, you know, repent or whatever, then maybe he'll love me. And the reality is you, you can't. He's a blazing fireball. But this is the beautiful thing, because we can't solve the problem, but God does. And God comes to Isaiah, and he takes the coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, look, your guilt is atoned for. 
Your sins are forgiven. Atone just means it's done. It's paid for. It's over. And of course, the coal, Isaiah would have understood the context of the coal. This coal was part of the altar. It was part of the sacrificial system. See, in the Old Testament, the God, in order to, to solve the irreconcilable Grand Canyon tension within his nature and ours, made a way so that unholy people could come into his presence and gaze at him without being destroyed, without dying. And basically what God did is he said, you could come into my presence without dying because something else is going to die in your place. And so for thousands, hundreds of years, these sacrifices were offered. But all of it was, was always pointing forward towards a moment in history where God would resolve the tension in himself. And it pointed forward to the Lamb of God, who the Apostle John says, Behold, he takes away the sin of the world. And in Jesus, God became one of us and died in our place so that when we come into the presence of God, we don't die. And so, but you notice, so I think for some of us, that's the invitation, is just to actually understand the gospel. Like, you are far worse than you think you are. And so am I. But God in his love has bridged the Grand Canyon through the blood of Jesus. The other thing, I think for some of us this morning, you know, Isaiah, God makes the way of atonement available, but Isaiah has to receive it. He lets, you know, he, first of all, he confesses and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he allows the seraph to touch him with the burning coal. And I think that's the same picture. We have the blood of Jesus, which we took in communion this morning, the incredible price God paid. But we have to receive the means of atonement. And so that means that where there are places in our lives that are impure, that are unholy, we ask God, Lord, would you search my heart? Would you show me? And we allow Jesus to touch the unclean places and to make us whole. And as I, as I close this morning, um, when we let God touch our unclean places and receive his mercy and we keep doing it, what happens is that we become holy. We become like the one who we worship. We come out looking more and more like him. Susie Silk says this, Jesus' life and death, his full atonement for our sins, transforms God's holiness from a threat to a delight and makes our walk of holiness a joy instead of a duty. We are invited into the presence of a holy God to worship him, to enjoy him, and to reflect his holy image to our world. In reflecting him, we become holy as he is holy, we put on the righteousness and purity of Christ. We live compelling lives of love and beauty. We become the unique, distinct individual selves that God created each of us to be. It's in his holiness that we find the source of all joy, love, peace, kindness, beauty, goodness, truth, wisdom, 
and everything else our heart irresistibly longs for. And so the more we see God, the more holy we become. And the more holy we become, the more we have the capacity to see God. The more holy we become, the more able we are to see who he is. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Psalm 24 says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, make every effort to live in holiness, for without it, no one will see the Lord. And the way we do it is gazing at the Holy One and asking him for a heart revelation of his holiness and letting him touch our lives in the unclean places so that we become like him. And friends, I just want to say it's time for us to become a holy people. It's who we were made to be. And to cast aside the sin in our lives and the stuff that's entangling us. And to present the unclean places to the Lord. To confess them, Lord, my anger, Lord, my bitterness, Lord, my internet history, Lord, my hands are not clean, my heart is not pure, but touch me, Lord. Touch me with your coal. Touch me with the blood of Jesus. Burn away everything in me that doesn't look like you so that I will be holy as you're holy. I want the Grand Canyon. I want the real thing. I'm not content, God, with pictures of you. I want to set up camp at the edge and gaze into your vast and terrible beauty. I want to see your glory. Hide me in the cleft of the rock as your goodness passes me by. And as we gaze at a holy God, we realize that even the Grand Canyon is but a picture of the awesome glory of the one who carved it with his finger, the holy one we long for. Amen.